Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are continuing our series on the church, and if COVID and quarantine has taught us anything, it is that we do not like to be alone, at least not for long periods of time. I mean, there is some benefit, there is some enjoyment to being alone at times. It is peaceful. Uh, There is the opportunity to come home at the end of a long day and, and unwind by yourself with your favorite television show or a good book. It's a good opportunity in the mornings to slowly get up, not having to rush anywhere, and enjoy a cup of coffee and the Bible by yourself. It is peaceful to perhaps have a day, an occasional day, when there's nothing you have to do. Nowhere to be, no responsibilities, no meetings or anyone to meet with. The day is just wide open for you to do whatever it is you want or nothing at all. Those days are nice. And welcome. But over time, I think we've learned that we desire one another. We crave to be in the company of other people for a variety of reasons, chief of which is because we were made for community. And so we seek that community in a multitude of outlets. The old sitcom Cheers used to begin with a song Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and where they're always glad you came. And so the sitcom was set in a Boston bar. And that is where some people go to find community, though that is not what I'm recommending this morning. It is one outlet for some people. Others join clubs or organizations that share a common passion. Sometimes it's support groups around a a challenge that you may be going through. Increasingly, we are finding groups online, chat rooms or gaming, virtual platforms, sometimes taking the place now of face-to-face encounters. But I'm going to suggest today that I believe the Bible assumes, states, and models that Christians need community with other Christians. And of course, since we are in a series on the church, you already know I'm going to say that community needs to be largely found, not exclusively, but largely found within the church. That you and I were never meant to live our Christian faith in isolation or alone. And indeed, if we try to do that, it is spiritually dangerous and unhealthy. Now, I am certainly not including missionaries here who choose to go into places of the world where there are no other Christians with which they can fellowship. Those missionaries have done that for evangelistic purposes. And so they may find themselves in a place in the world where there is no community, but even then, they need our prayers and they need our support, and with technology, they can still connect with other Christians around the world. But my focus today is on professing believers in a setting very much like ours, which by that I mean in a place in the world where there are plenty of other professing Christians with which we can fellowship. In this kind of setting in which we live, 
there is no place for going it alone in our faith. As I said, such a direction will prove dangerous, and it is downright sinful and unbiblical at the same time. Again, we've been in this study on the church, and so we are suggesting this morning, we are doing more than suggesting, we are saying that the Bible makes the claim and models the claim for us and largely assumes that Christians are going to go to church. We are going to be faithful in attending a local church. And when we get there, we are going to be faithful in serving one another as we serve the Lord in and through that church. And then as we're looking at today, we are going to find community in that church as well. Now that does not mean that you cannot join ball teams or other affinity groups I'm simply saying that the church should be our priority, to not just attend and not just to serve, but to fellowship one with another within the body of Christ. And so we are going to continue with our series, and in fact, we are going to continue with our titles. We're not only glad to attend, we're not only glad to serve, but today we are glad to fellowship. Now, there is no verse in the Bible, like we've seen the past two weeks, that explicitly says, glad to fellowship. But again, we're going to see that this is found throughout the Bible, that it not only states that we should, but in large measure, it assumes in all of these churches to which the epistles are written. I've selected for our text this morning the little letter of Philemon, chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. If you do not know where Philemon is, it is the last of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And so you can go to Hebrews and turn left. It is right before the book of Hebrews. Now, there are likely some better texts that I could have chosen, perhaps the first chapter of Philippians, or perhaps the first chapter of 1 John. But both of those books we have done more recently, and so I did not want to use those verses again. And so I've gone to Philemon, although many years ago we did spend two weeks looking at this small letter. Philemon chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, as we discover we are glad to fellowship. Paul writes, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, the first thing we need to do this morning is we need to talk about fellowship defined. That is, we need to know what this is because fellowship is one of those words that we use in the church, usually without even thinking about it and simply assume that everybody knows what we mean when we use it. As I said in passing a few weeks ago, there is a difference between fellowship and socializing. Socializing is you and I getting together around a shared interest. And so we might talk about a ball game from yesterday. That is socializing. We might gather with those who have similar tastes as we do or hobbies like we do. And so in a few moments when you go to your Sunday school class and you've got a cup of coffee and perhaps you have a donut 
and you're talking about the basketball game from yesterday, that's not fellowship. You're going to call it that, but that's not what it is. That's socializing, and there's perfectly good reasons to do that, but it is not the same thing as fellowship. But before we get to our definition, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why did you choose this text? The word fellowship doesn't even occur here. Surely you could have found a verse that used the word fellowship. I'm reading from the ESV version, that is the English Standard Version, and in the English Standard Version, the word fellowship occurs nine times, but of course not in this text. But the Greek word that is usually translated fellowship, a word that perhaps you have heard of, there's not a whole lot of Greek words the average person has heard of, but maybe you've heard of the word for fellowship. It is the Greek word koinonia, and that word is found here in our text. It is found in verse 6. Look at that again. In verse 6, he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, that phrase, the sharing of your faith, is a translation of the Greek word koinonia, which is often translated as fellowship. So it is found here, and some translations do put fellowship. But here it is, the sharing of your faith. Now, when we use that phrase, we're thinking about evangelism. The sharing of our faith with a view toward helping someone understand the gospel so that they might respond. But that is not the use of the word here. When he says the sharing of your faith here, he's talking about not evangelism, but about living their lives one with another, sharing a common faith together, and that indeed is fellowship. Now the word fellowship is used throughout the New Testament in a multitude of ways. It is actually found with reference to all three members of the Trinity, meaning that we, have, we can have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we are said, or they are said, to be devoting themselves to fellowship. In Galatians, Paul and Barnabas are said to have been given the right hand of fellowship, meaning that they were accepted. In the first chapter of John, a, a book I mentioned a few moments ago, the word fellowship in the ESV is found four times. Four of the nine occurrences are found in the first chapter of 1 John, which again would have made it a great text had we not done that letter recently. There is also one negative use of the word. It is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There Paul is talking about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And he goes on to say the reason is what fellowship has light with darkness. But as we discuss fellowship this morning, we are confining ourselves in this discussion to fellowship one with another. So we are not going to be talking about our fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. But I do need you to understand that that forms the foundation for our fellowship one with another. We cannot have what we're going to call Christian fellowship with one another without that foundation. So back to the definition of the word. Sometimes it's translated as participation. Sometimes it is partnership. It's even translated communion, though not in the sense of the Lord's Supper, but communion with other believers. So in short, it means to share, to share in something. However, in the church, we are using the word even more specifically, as I think the Bible is doing. So it is not just to share in anything, but it is to share in the spiritual life. 
That's why I said when you go to Sunday school and you're talking about the ball game over coffee and donuts, that's socializing. There's nothing wrong with that. But it is the specifically sharing of our spiritual lives that defines Christian fellowship. So that when two or three or 10 or 12 get together and we're talking about spiritual things, that is fellowship. We talk about the things that we love. We light up when a discussion centers on something that we are interested in. On the other hand, we've all been in discussions that we care nothing about. Discussions that we want to quickly end. Discussions that we have to force ourselves to look like we care and to stay awake. But when we talk about the things we love, we have energy. We want to be involved in it. And since we say we love God, then when we are talking about the things of God, we ought to light up. There ought to be some fellowship with other believers around spiritual things. Now, I also want to give you a little bit of the background of Philemon. Not a lot, but a little bit, because I always think it's important to know the context in which the words we are studying are coming from. So you might know that, again, that Paul is our author. He's writing to a man named Philemon who is a member of the church in Colossae. You might remember that from our study of the book of Colossians. He's actually writing those two books, Colossians and Philemon, and sending them back to Colossae together. Obviously, the book of Colossians is going to the church as a whole, but this letter that we're looking at is going to the man named Philemon. Philemon had a slave, and I know that troubles us, but that's a subject for another day. But Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus had somehow gotten free. He had run away from Philemon. He had made his way all the way to Rome, which was a very long way away, and somehow had come in contact with the Apostle Paul in Rome, and through Paul had been converted. And now Paul, along with this letter, is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, and he is hoping that Philemon will not receive him as a runaway slave who is worthy of death but instead that he will now receive him as a brother in Christ. And we, of course, are in the introductory comments of this letter where Paul is reminiscing about his relationship with Philemon. So we have defined fellowship as, as the sharing in spiritual life. Secondly, I want you to see fellowship growth. And by that I mean the spiritual growth that occurs in our lives through Christian fellowship. You will remember that we began the year by talking about four passions that we ought to have. And one of those passions was progress. That is progress in our spiritual lives. And fellowship is one of the means by which we have that progress. Again, we see this in verse 6. Right after Paul mentions Philemon's faith, there is the word for fellowship there, the sharing of the faith. And this fellowship results in full knowledge. Now, that does not mean perfection, but it means progress. Now, next week, we're going to conclude our series on the church, and we are going to talk about this same subject, but in terms of listening and learning within the church. That is, hearing Bible studies and hearing preaching and why that is so important. And so we'll talk more about that next week. But today we're talking about how Christian fellowship encourages growth. The truth of the matter is no one individual has all they need for spiritual growth. 
even with all the countless resources that are available to us online or in print, we do not have all we need alone because no one person has all the gifts. No one person has all of the knowledge. We all have blind spots in our lives that others can help us with. And blind spots, by definitions, are areas of our lives in which we do not see clearly. And so we might think we're going the right direction when in, when, when in reality we're not. Or we might think we have the right belief when in reality we don't. And that is why we need one another to sharpen us. The writer of Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And that is the theme verse for countless men's ministry throughout the country. But it is not reserved for men. That is for all of us. As one believer sharpens another, that is exactly what we need. We need to rub shoulders with each other to talk about our theology. And all of us have a theology whether we know that or not. We need to talk with each other about our thoughts, spiritual thoughts. We need to learn from each other even as we teach one another. In sports, we talk about competition making us stronger. That is, if a team has good competition within their own team, they become a stronger team. If you have to compete every week against someone else that's very good in order to get your starting position, then that's going to strengthen you. Likewise, when it comes to our spiritual life, not competition, but community strengthens us. As we rub shoulders with one another, we are strengthened in our spiritual growth because the fellowship of other believers helps us when we are struggling. It encourages us when we are discouraged. It applauds us when we succeed. We need others to rejoice with us in life's triumphs and to weep with us over life's struggles. And that fellowship in both good and bad times is what keeps us going. It's what keeps our faith moving in the right direction, forward rather than backwards. I said it in passing, I think, in the, in the Sermon on Attendance, but one of the first things people forsake when they're struggling in life is attendance with the body of Christ. They no longer have the desire to gather with the body of believers, and so they don't. They cut themselves off from the very organization that God ordained to help them, and then their struggles just spiral out of control. Because if you forsake the organization that God designed to strengthen you and encourage you in your difficult times, if you take that away, the very thing God says is the remedy, then you have nowhere else to turn and your spiritual growth is going to decline. Do you remember when we used to grill with charcoal bricks? Now, some of you may still do that. It makes no sense to me. I don't know why you would. But gas grills are so easy. But you all remember grilling with charcoal. You piled it all up in the middle, right? You got that pile of charcoal piled up in the middle, and then you doused it with lighter fluid, and you lit a match. And that thing flamed up. Probably don't do that anymore because it was never safe. But we did it. And then after a while, as the coals got hot, you could spread them out just a little bit. But we all knew that you didn't put individual charcoal bricks all around the, the pit there, light them one by one. They needed to be together to share the heat one with another. And if you pull one of those away from the rest, it is not going to be hot enough to cook your meat, and it is quickly going to cool. And that's a good picture of what happens spiritually. We need one another for us to grow spiritually. 
And if we separate ourselves from the rest of the body of Christ, we are going to cool very quickly. And we are not going to make progress in our spiritual life. Again, we'll talk more about that next week when it comes to to learning and teaching. And so we'll move on this morning. The third thing I want to mention is what I'm calling fellowship blessings. This is my way of helping us to see hashtag blessed. We are hashtag blessed by fellowshipping one with another in the body of Christ. Now, we always want to know what's in it for us. We want to know the benefits and the blessings, especially if we are going to invest our time and it's going to cost us and we're going to invest resources. We want to know what are we going to get out of it. And that's what I want to say at this point. I'm not promising that it's going to pay off physically. I'm not promising that it's going to pay off financially. But I am promising that it is going to pay off spiritually, not only in the spiritual growth that we've just discussed, but in other ways as well. So notice what blessings Paul says he has received through his relationship with Philemon. And no doubt this can be echoed with other people in the church in Colossae and in every other church Paul helped found or build. First, he says, the fellowship he has experienced has brought him much joy. I think it's safe to say that this is an element of our faith that is often lacking. Or at least most of us would say that we're not full of joy. We might have it from time to time as we understand it, but I doubt very seriously any of us would say that we are overflowing with joy. Now, we might readily describe uh, relationships in the church with other words, They don't bring us joy. They bring us frustration, annoyance, or they're challenging. And those words are true. Those words do describe some relationships we have in the church. After all, we are all sinful. Yes, that means you too. So if there's a relationship that's frustrating or challenging, in all likelihood, part of the problem is you. And part of the problem is the other person. And so I realize that that not everything is ideal and not every relationship brings us joy. But certainly some should. As we share our faith, not evangelistically in this case, but as we share our faith, meaning we live life with one another within the body of Christ, then there ought to be some joy that results. Now, I think that we have a misunderstanding of what joy means when it comes to the Christian life, meaning that we tend to think it is merely an emotion. We equate joy with excitement, someone who is giddy all of the time. And for that to happen, we assume that everything in their life must be going well. That is, you can't be giddy and excited unless your life is going great. And since our life is not going great, then it's no wonder that we don't have real joy. So we tend to think that joy is like the excitement leading up to a trip to Disney and the magical experience that you have once you get there. That's joy, but that's one week a year. You can't live a Disney life all year long. And while joy does include emotions, we have to acknowledge that people express themselves in different ways, often due to their different personalities. And by that, I mean that one person is more expressive while another is more reserved. And sadly, we tend to judge one another based on these emotions. That is, if we don't see joy in the face of someone else, or we can't see them express that joy, we simply assume that they don't have it, or vice versa. 
If we see an expression in other people and we don't have that same expression, we tend to think that we're not doing as well spiritually as they are. And again, vice versa. And so we tend to think of joy as plastering a smile on our face all of the time so that people always think we are happy. But that can't possibly be the true definition of joy. After all, Paul himself says, count it all joy when you face various trials. Paul talks about rejoicing in the midst of suffering, having joy in the midst of persecution. And those are not things we enjoy, but they are things that we can find joy through. So I would say that joy, it does include emotions, but I would say it's more akin to satisfaction or contentment in Christ, something that can be found regardless of our circumstances. So while at times joy is expressed in excitement, at other times it might be expressed in a sense of wholeness, in a sense of contentment in who we are and where we are in Christ enhanced by our fellowship with one another. The second thing Paul says there as a blessing is that he has been a comfort. He's not just brought him joy, but he's brought him comfort, which is pretty close to the way I have just described joy. Now here we are not talking about physical comfort, that is the absence of pain. You know that when people get to the latter stages of their life, sometimes, people, sometimes doctors will try to ease their, their, or try to give them comfort. We say they, they try to keep them comfortable, meaning that they're doing everything they can merely to take away the pain. That is not, of course, what we are talking about here. We are not talking about the comfort that we often try to give one another at the death of a, a loved one. That is, we go by the funeral home and offer words of comfort in the midst of their grief. Paul is not using the word in either one of those cases here, but he is using it in a more uh, common scenario. He's talking about our relationships and how they bring us satisfaction in life. I mean, you know the feeling of being with a longtime friend or your spouse and just the comfort of their presence. It's not about the words they say. It's not about the things you might be doing. It is just the comfort of being with someone else the comfort of a shared spiritual life that you have with them and those in the church. That's what he's talking about here. The satisfaction that such a relationship brings is an element of fellowship. And we all need this, though that doesn't mean that you have to have it with everybody else in the church. I'm not saying that every individual in the church should bring you joy or comfort. That's just not practical. It's not even practical in a small church. So he's not talking about every single person, but there ought to be some relationships in our Christian life and within the body of Christ that these things do in fact describe. But now to have this kind of fellowship that results in joy and comfort, there must be love. That's the basis, Paul says, for such relationships. Mutual love, Paul's love for Philemon, and Philemon's love for Paul has brought him comfort and joy. So this love is the, is the foundation of the others. And again, certainly we're not talking about romantic love here. We're not talking, again, primarily about an emotion or a feeling. As 1 John says, love is an expression of our relationship with Christ. It is one mark of genuine salvation. 
so that you want to not only be in church, you want to not only serve in church, but you want to love your fellow believers in the body of Christ as well and fellowship with them. And that is one of the major reasons why we have various kinds of small groups. It's one of the major reasons we have Sunday school, which we'll be going to in just a few moments. It's why we offer life groups on Sunday night and various other small groups, because it is in those small settings that you can have the fellowship that you can't possibly have in this kind of setting. We realize in this kind of setting, you come in, you sit down, you sing, you listen to me, you get up and you leave. That's not fellowship. That's going to be more akin to the learning that we're going to talk about next week. And so you need those small settings to get to know other people, to have those kind of relationships that result in fellowship, which basically means if you are not involved in some sort of small group within the church, then you're not experiencing Christian fellowship. Now, you might have Christian fellowship through your family. I do hope your family are fellow believers, and so you might experience that in your family. But you need it in the church as well. You need the perspective that others will bring outside of your family. So this should go without saying that if you and I are going to have this kind of fellowship, we have to make an effort. Again, this does not fall on everyone else. This is not for us to sit back and say, exactly, that's, it, that's what I need, and I'm waiting on someone to come and give me what I need. The Bible says that for someone to have friends, he himself must be friendly. You can't expect to be blessed by the fellowship of other people if you're not willing to invest in those relationships. And so if you are disconnected from other believers, the first place to look, not the only place, but the first place to look if you're disconnected from other believers is yourself. Are you investing in relationships within the body of Christ? I was talking to a friend of mine this week from my previous church via email, and we were talking about uh, the two churches and how things are going, and we, we shared the same sentiments. You know, we're still struggling to get some of our old-time members back, while at the same time, we're seeing more visitors than we've ever seen before, which is a strange mix, trying to get older, old people back, old members, while seeing new faces all of the time. But in the email exchange, she went on to say, that not only were they struggling with those two things, but they were struggling with a third element, and that is connecting those new people, those new faces, to the fellowship of the church. Because in, during COVID, we're not willing to branch out. We've, we've gone into our small cocoon of our closest family and friends, and we're unwilling to reach out to other people. And so that has become a struggle to connect other believers who are new to the church to a group that they can fellowship with. Frankly, that's always been an issue. It's always been a struggle in small groups, Sunday school, for example, to make sure that group is open and is inviting to new people, not only just letting them come into the room, that's not what I mean, but genuinely being open to the discussion to invite them in and not wall them off unconsciously. Now, you might already have all the fellowship you need, you might say to yourself, I've got enough Christian friends and I, I got enough support. And that might be true. But there are other people who don't. And you might be the one they need to welcome them in to the fellowship so that they can experience the very, thing, very same things you're already doing. It's very similar to your relationship with your bank. If you go down to the bank tomorrow morning or you use your ATM, there's one thing that must take place before you go to the bank, and before 
you use your ATM. And what is that? You have to deposit something. I mean, they don't let you just come down there and take money. You got to put something in before you can take something out. Now, there are exceptions to that. If you choose to take something out without putting something in, it's called bank robbery, and that's a federal crime. Or you can get a loan from the, from the bank, but they're going to expect you to pay that back. But if you're taking money out with no expectation of giving it back, that's only because you've already put money in. And that's the way it is in our relationships. If you expect to get something out of relationships, what we're calling fellowship this morning, then you've got to put something in and build those relationships. Well, the final thing I want us to notice, the last phrase of the last verse we read, is what I'm calling fellowship refreshment. Now again, I'm not talking about donuts. I'm talking about spiritual refreshment, not physical. We know what it's like to be physically refreshed. It's hard to think about this morning, but come June or July, there's going to be some 90-plus degree days. And we're going to be out there cutting the grass yet again. And we're going to be sweaty and hot and tired. And then as soon as we get through cutting the grass, we're going to sit down on our front porch, and we're going to have a nice tall glass of iced tea or lemonade. And we know that's going to bring refreshment. That just those few moments with a, with a nice drink is going to bring us refreshment. That's physical refreshment. But Paul here is talking about how Philemon has brought him spiritual refreshment. The fact of the matter is we do get tired spiritually. We do get worn out. We do wonder if it's all worth it and should we just step aside and quit. That's why the Bible repeatedly calls on us and commands us to persevere and endure and keep going, encouraging us along the way. And that's what we are to do with and for one another. We need encouragement. We need refreshment. And again, we see the mutual responsibility within the body of Christ. This statement is just an example of Philemon living out the one another commands of the Bible, specifically the command to encourage one another. And as a result, he has brought Paul refreshment. And not just to Paul, but to all the saints with whom he's had fellowship. Now, that's, that's a good thing to be known for, isn't it? Wouldn't you like people to say that about you? You know, he or she, I mean, she's just refreshing. He's just a refresher. I mean, when he comes into the room, it just breathes life into the room. Is that what people say about you? Or there's an opposite, right? I mean, he just drains me. She is just a drain. I mean, when she walks into the room, I, I look the other way. I try not to make eye contact. I don't want to talk to her because she just saps my strength. Now, which one do you want to be known for? You want to be a drain or do you want to be a refresher? And do you want to be around people who are drains or do you want to be around people who are refreshing? Genuine fellowship means that we gather with one another talking about spiritual things and refresh one another along the way. So we can be isolated and alone, something that COVID has sort of forced upon us, at least for a period of time, or we can be together and refreshed. And if you put it like that, the answer is pretty clear. But again, we've also hinted at the truth that the path to fellowship is harder to follow. And there might be uh, and this might be all the, the more true depending on your personality or temperament. But fellowship is not reserved for just those people who are outgoing. 
It is not just for the extroverted Christians, it is for all of us, and it is essential. Yes, it might cost you some time, and it might cost you some uh, investment, some energy, but as, I've, as I hope we've seen today, it is well worth it. And so I close with a plea for joining the church, for being a part of the body of believers, something that a lot of churches are now downplaying. I mean, why do I need to join a church? As long as I attend, as long as I serve, and as long as you've said this morning, I fellowship, why do I need to join? Well, because I think joining a church says that you're committed to that body of believers and that they in turn are committed to you. Now you say, but hasn't there been a lot of people who've reneged on that commitment? Absolutely. We have a lot of members who have at one time said, I'm committed to this particular body who are nowhere to be found. But just because there are members who have reneged on their commitment doesn't negate that you need to make that same commitment. Now, I'm not trying to force you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. Honestly, I don't want you to make a quick decision. We have enough members on our roll who are nowhere to be found. We don't need any more. What we need on our rolls are members who are going to be committed to attend, to serve, and to fellowship. And again, as we'll see next week, to learn. And so I'm asking you to prayerfully consider, if you're not already, whether this is the church that God wants you to do those very things in. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the time we've had this morning to study your word, for the truths we found through this letter from Paul to Philemon. And I pray that uh, we would understand the priority, the importance of sharing our spiritual lives with other believers, both within the programs and ministries of the church and outside of those things, gathering with other believers for various things on a regular basis, that we might grow, that we might find joy and comfort, and that we might be blessed by the fellowship we have with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond. Mm -hmm.